upon the Holy Spirit for guidance. Please bow your head. Gracious Lord, like Nicodemus, we come to the word with many questions. Like the Pharisees, we can be captivated by correctness, intent on right answers. As we turn to your word, Spirit of God, do not let our desire for information dominate our need for transformation. Let us hear the word and be moved to greater faith and obedience. Amen. Romans 3, chapters 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of, the, of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human, human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. May God bless this reading of his holy word to our understanding. Thank you, Doug. Uh, this past Monday and Tuesday, I had the opportunity to speak at Denver Seminary as a part of their Spurgeon Lecture Series. Uh, the Spurgeon Lecture Series allows Denver Seminary to bring pastors from the Reformed faith to talk about mission and ministry from a Reformed perspective. And so uh, I, I gave three talks. Uh, you can actually download them if you want to hear them uh, on the Denver Seminary webpage. You can go to the chapel tab and then you can listen to those talks. Uh, my third and final talk was on total depravity. Now, we didn't advertise that I was going to talk about total depravity. Not sure anyone would come to hear about total depravity. Uh, but total depravity is a doctrine within the Reformed faith that explains that because of the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have inherited a sinful nature that left to its own is prone to wander from God. It is prone to rebel against God. And so as the scriptures teach us and as Doug read just a moment ago in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 to 12, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one seeks for God. The fact is, with our sinful nature, we are prone to wander from God. We are not going to seek after God on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to do a work in our life. As the Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, his name was Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus to kill Christians. But God, in his sovereign grace, got a hold of Saul, blinded him on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him, and his life was forever changed. 
Yes, as Presbyterians, we recognize the doctrine of total depravity. It doesn't mean that every part of me is totally sinful, but rather that every part of me has been impacted by sin in some way. My heart, my mind, my will has been impacted by sin. And every time we break one of the Ten Commandments uh, or we fail to do what we ought to do, like loving our neighbor as ourselves, we sin. We miss the mark of God's law. We miss the mark of God's word. As we continue our journey through the story, the grand narrative of Scripture, we will see that even King David, whom Will preached about last week, even King David, who was a hero of the faith, King David, a, a man after God's own heart, King David, a man who wrote many of the psalms that we have today, even King David stumbled. Even King David sinned. So what are we to do when we sin, when we fall short of God's glory? What should we do when we fall short of what God's desire is for us, when we willfully disobey God's law or or sin unintentionally by failing to do what we ought to do? To find out what our response should be to our sin, Open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 23. It may be found on page 334 of your pew Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 to 23. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have inspired people to put pen to paper so that we might have your written word today. We pray, Lord, that as we read your word again and as we read it, Lord, you might speak to us that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Second Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse one. Listen to the word of the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan to David He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then King David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, 
Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted their child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house, and when he had asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servant said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have sinned against the Lord. These are the words David says when he hears the convicting words of the prophet Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. This confession is in complete contrast to King Saul. When the prophet Samuel tries to confront King Saul, King Saul gives an explanation. When the prophet Nathan confronts King David, King David gives a confession. I have sinned against the Lord. In the Hebrew, this uh, phrase, I have sinned against the Lord, is actually just two words in the Hebrew, hata Yahweh, hata Yahweh, I have sinned against the Lord. But what about Uriah? I mean, didn't King David sin against Uriah? Shouldn't he have said, I have sinned against the Lord and Uriah? I mean, I'm pretty sure he sinned against Uriah as well. He stole Uriah's wife. He had Uriah murdered. Why does King David simply say, I have sinned against the Lord? What about Uriah? You all know the story. It's found in the very the chapter preceding 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 11 will read the story that during the time of year, during the spring when kings should go off to war, King David stayed at home. And while the troops were fighting for the nation of Israel, King David was comfortable in his palace. Late one afternoon, 
David gets on the roof of his palace and he begins to walk around and he sees this beautiful woman bathing named Bathsheba. Well, he sends a servant to find out about this woman and the, and the servant comes back to King David and he tells him in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 3, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Notice that introduction of Bathsheba is that she's, yes, the daughter of Eliam, but he also says the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Historically, you would name the father, perhaps the grandfather, even the great-grandfather when you give someone's identity, but this servant makes a point to tell King David, this is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Because this servant knows that, as we can read in Second Chronicles, at this time, King David has many wives and concubines, seven in total living in his palace. This servant knows that King David is a very passionate man who loves women a great deal. He knows what King David is thinking when he asks to inquire about Bathsheba. And so he warns him, this is the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. This is not just some woman you can lust after. This is another man's woman. But King David doesn't care, does he? King David is in power, and what King David wants, King David gets. After all, David is the king. And David's power as the king, he sends for her, he sends for Bathsheba, he takes her into his own bed and commits adultery. Now, for David, this was probably intended to be a one-night stand, but then he receives word that Bathsheba is now pregnant. And so David comes up with this plan. He decides to call Uriah, the Hittite, from the battlefield back to Jerusalem, thinking that if Uriah comes home, surely he will lay with his wife, and Uriah will think that the child that Bathsheba is now carrying is his. But as we know, Uriah is a very honorable soldier, and he refuses to lie with his wife to experience such pleasure when he knows that his fellow soldiers are out fighting in the battlefield. Well, because he will not initially agree to do this, King David says, well, I know what to do. I'll get Uriah drunk. And so he, he has a feast, and he invites Uriah, and he gets Uriah drunk, thinking that, well, once he's drunk, then his honorable uh, ideas will, will fall, and his inhibitions will fall, and, and he will go and lie with his wife, which he has every right to do. Ironically, Uriah the Hittite, drunk, proves to be more honorable than King David the Israelite, sober. Uriah does not lie with Bathsheba. He holds on to his honorable conviction that as a soldier in the Lord's army, he cannot experience pleasure while his fellow soldiers are fighting. So King David decides to send Uriah back to the battlefield, but he sends a note with Uriah telling Joab, the general, that when the fighting begins, he needs to put Uriah up at the front and then to withdraw so that Uriah might be killed in battle. And so Joab follows the king's orders and Uriah is killed. And so then David decides to marry Bathsheba after she has mourned the death of her husband Uriah. He marries Bathsheba hoping to cover his sin, thinking thinking that no one really knows what has happened. No one has seen what he's done. But the last verse of 2 Samuel chapter 11 says it all. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God sees everything, doesn't he? King David has coveted another man's wife, he has committed adultery, and he has murdered Uriah the Hittite to cover it up. David has broken three of the Ten Commandments, and two of these three are actually the punishment for two of these three, adultery and murder, are punishable by death according to Mosaic law. David deserves to die because of the sins that he's committed. God is displeased, and God lets David know his displeasure through the words of the prophet Nathan. 
Now, in our text this morning, Nathan tells his clever parable about the about a wealthy master who steals a, a little ewe lamb from this poor servant in order to, to feed this traveler from out of town. It's ironic that when Nathan tells this story, King David becomes very angry very fast and says, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now the punishment for stealing in ancient times, according to Mosaic Law, is to return that which was stolen and add a fifth to it. It's not to pay back fourfold or not to die. He says he deserves to die. That's a, it's a little harsh. How quick King David is to judge the sin of another man. How quick we can often be to judge the sin of another person. We hear from someone what someone has done and we're quick to judge and condemn them and say, oh, that is wrong. Even though we may not know because it's hearsay, whether or not we actually have the facts, we may just be receiving gossip. And gossip, by definition, uh, is unconstrained conversation or reports about other people, typically involving details that are not confirmed as being true. Gossip is condemned repeatedly throughout the Bible. Gossip is a sin because ultimately it divides community. Which reminds me of a story. There were these three priests who decided to go on a retreat together and they went on this retreat, this spiritual retreat and as a part of the retreat, the spiritual director said that, well, now we want you to confess your sins to one another. As Catholic priests, people are always confessing the sins to, of them to, to, to these priests and so they said, now it's your turn to confess your sins. And so the first priest uh, steps up and says, well, my sin is actually plagiarism. I don't write my own sermons. I download them on a Saturday night and I have never given credit. I just preach what I download on the internet. And the other priests go, oh, wow. The second priest says, well, actually, my sin is stealing. Every time the offering is taken, I take a little off the top. Well, the third priest is sitting there. He has a big smile on his face. And he says, well, actually, my sin is gossip. And I can't wait till this retreat is over so I can tell everybody what you've been doing. (laughs) You know, I imagine the prophet Nathan could come to any one of our homes, couldn't he? He could tell some clever parable. And we would be convicted of our own sin. And he would say, you are the man, or you are the woman. And like King David, we would have to say, I have sinned against the Lord. Let's say that together. I have sinned against the Lord. Those are powerful words, aren't they? They're they're words that humbly recognize our sin, our need for forgiveness, our need for grace. And so we say to God, I have sinned against the Lord. But what about Uriah? Didn't King David sin against Uriah? Shouldn't he have said, I have sinned against the Lord and Uriah? Why doesn't King David say, I have sinned against the Lord and Uriah? Well, notice in verse 9 of our text this morning, after being, uh, Nathan says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. It's true that David sinned against Uriah, but David knows that God is his ultimate judge. And his sin is found in the fact that he despised the word of the Lord, as Nathan says. The Lord and his word are inseparable. To neglect or to offend the word of the Lord is to offend the Lord. In the Lord's eyes, David has made a mockery of the Ten Commandments by breaking three of them, by coveting, by committing adultery, and then murder. Anytime we willfully sin and break one of the Ten Commandments or we reject the clear teachings of Jesus, we despise the word of the Lord and our sin is against the Lord. 
for he is our ultimate judge. I believe David's confession is centered on God and not Uriah because it's clear through both the Old and the New Testament, our creator, our God is our ultimate judge. We will be held accountable to him one day. And God is the one who sees all. God is the one that we should ultimately confess our sins to, first of all. Now, David may have tried to behave as if life was normal, but the fact is, if you read Psalm 32, we know that it wasn't normal for King David. Even while Bathsheba was pregnant with his own child, he felt great guilt for what he had done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his wonderful book, Life Together, says that he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. David knew that he was alone. He was guilty. He felt the burden of his sin. And so in Psalm 32, verses one through five, King David writes these words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. King David doesn't find relief until he finally confesses his sin to the Lord. I don't know where you are this morning, but if you have any unconfessed sin, the best thing we can do is confess that sin to God. As you walked in this morning, you may have noticed, let me get mine, That within your bulletin, there's a black piece of butcher paper. In a moment here, I'm going to read Psalm 51. I'm going to invite you to write down with a black pen from the pew rack there. Write down whatever sin God convicts you of as I read Psalm 51. For there are sins that we willfully commit, and then there are sins of omission. Sins of omission, things we ought to do that we fail to do. And I'm asking that as we read Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote after Nathan convicted of, of his sin, that you might allow these words to sink into your heart and become your prayer. And as you ask God to reveal your sin to you, I pray that you might write them down as an opportunity for confession. Black pen, black paper, no one will be able to read what you write and you can fold it up. And then during the offering, we're going to ask you as a part of your offering to us this morning that you might offer these. And then the ushers are going to bring them down the center aisle and we're going to put them at the foot of the table, the foot of the Lord's table, the foot of the cross so that we might recognize that when Christ died on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sins. That his body was given for us, his blood was shed for us so that our sins might be atoned for once and for all. So please now join me and listen to the words that King David wrote after his sin was exposed and he was convicted of his sin that day. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. 
Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth to declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. As we write down our sins this morning as a form of confession to God, we can see that the story of David and Bathsheba teaches us that any one of us, if King David, a man after God's own heart, is able to make such horrible decisions, any one of us is susceptible to sin. Any one of us is susceptible to make a decision that could lead to grave consequences that could hurt many people. How are we to make sure we avoid the mistakes of King David? Now that it's true that as human beings, we will never be sinless. Uh, We have a sinful nature, and we will not be sinless until we die and go to heaven or until Christ returns, whichever happens first. But as we look at the story of King David, there are certain things we can learn so that we don't make the same mistakes that King David did. There are certain things we can do to avoid certain sins and temptations in our life today. First, I believe that we should begin each and every day by meditating on the word of God. John Calvin says that the scriptures are the lens through which we ought to see the world. As we read God's word, which the Holy Spirit inspired, it begins to convict us and it begins to shape our thinking and shape our perspective. So that when temptation comes, we are ready to resist that temptation. As Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, when Satan came to tempt Jesus, Jesus responded with the word of God each and every time. We need to spend time reading and meditating on God's word. We also need to avoid places of temptation. The moment King David sees Bathsheba bathing, he should have turned and walked away. He should not have lingered for a lustful look. He should have turned and walked away. We need to make sure that we're where we need to be, where we ought to be. And we need to make sure that we're doing what, we should, what we're supposed to be doing. During the spring and the season of the year when the king should be off to battle, King David chose for the first time to stay home, to let his other men do his fighting for him. Rather than being a servant leader and leading by example, he chose to send others. We've got to make sure that we're doing what God calls us to do. If we will focus on the the work of God's kingdom, then the temptations of this world will seem less and less attractive. 
So we need to spend time in God's word. We need to make sure we are where we need to be and we need to make sure we're doing what we should be doing. And finally, when we do sin, and we will sin, we need to confess our sins to God and we need, as the brother of Jesus says in James chapter 5, verse 16, we need to confess our sins to one another for the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We need to make sure that as we study God's word, we don't simply do it in isolation every morning, but that rather we're in some kind of weekly Christ-centered community where we can gather together for weekly Bible study and share life together and share our prayer concerns and hold one another accountable and exhort one another to walk in God's ways. Yes, it's true that there are grave consequences to David's sin, but the amazing story, the amazing grace of this story is that even though David has sinned, even though that first child that Bathsheba gives birth to dies, God in his amazing grace chooses to redeem this relationship that was born out of sin by allowing David and Bathsheba to have another son, a son named King Solomon, who ultimately becomes the wisest king in the history of Israel. And as you read the genealogy of Jesus, you'll see that Jesus came from the lineage of King Solomon. Yes, God redeems this broken relationship and ultimately he will bring the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to pay the price for our sins once and for all with his death on a cross. As Jesus says on the cross, it is finished. Our sins have been atoned for. And he came to bring us new life. In his resurrection, he conquered sin and death and now he has given us through faith the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us as we seek to follow him. So we're no longer slaves to sin, but rather we can be guided by the Holy Spirit and resist the temptations of this world. As the Apostle Paul writes, no one is going to be tempted beyond what we can bear, for God has provided a way out. Through his Holy Spirit, we can walk in God's ways and resist the temptations of this world. This is only possible as we spend time in God's word, as we make sure we are where we need to be, doing what we should be doing, and make sure that we're a part of a Christ-centered community where we confess our sins to God and to each other for mutual accountability and encouragement. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, as we confess our sins to you this morning, we're thankful that at the cross of Christ, our sins have been atoned for. We recognize that we're all sinners in need of your grace, and we look at King David and his story, and we think, wow, if a man after God's own heart, if a man who who wrote so many psalms is able to stumble and fall and make so many poor choices, we know that we too are susceptible to making poor choices. So God, I pray that by your spirit you would guide us and lead us in all truth as we read your word each and every day, that it might become the compass by which we walk. I pray, Lord, that we might make every effort to be where we need to be, doing what we should be doing, and make sure that we're in some kind of weekly Christ-centered community where we can share our lives together, studying your word, confessing our sins, and praying for one another, knowing that the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son who is the Christ. And all God's people said, amen. One of the ministries we're most excited about that we help support is uh, the Gideon's ministry, which helps put the word of God into people's hands. And Lee Stamp is here to share with us what God is doing in the Gideon's today.